number of weeks ago at our Wednesday night prayer meeting, I asked for prayer concerning the next time we gather together on a Zoom meeting with the pastors in New York State. And the uh, reason I asked for prayer is that um, I settled upon a, a format of study and of uh, pastoral interaction that would be a bit different. I would have a set theme that I would make known to the, to the guys, and then I would present something on the theme and look for discussion to follow. And uh, the, um, the thing that became the subject matter uh, resulted from a discussion I had with one of the pastors who called me and asked uh, me my opinion on something because he knew I had preached through the book of Isaiah. And I preached through it uh, really textually from beginning to end, going through the different chapters of the book. And um, he asked me um, what I thought about Isaiah's view of eschatology. I was walking the rail trail when this question was asked, so I spent about probably 40 minutes giving him my sense of what Isaiah's view of the end times was. That's what eschatology is. Eschatos is, means the last, uh, and uh, logos means the study of or study of things. The last things is what eschatology is about. And the thing about eschatology is it's part of usually something that's taught in systematic theology where systematic theology looks to collate the total totality of the witness of God's word on any given theme. So you have a, um, a theme of Christ, which they call Christology, or a theme, a theme of salvation. They use the Greek word for salvation, soter, and they come up with soteriology to speak of the doctrine of soteriology, this doctrine of salvation. And with eschatology, or uh, it's the eschaton, the end times. Uh, what does Isaiah? What what do those? What does the Bible say on that subject? And usually, it's the totality of the biblical witness. And uh, there are specialized studies where people will look at the different books of the Bible and try to figure out. What was the view of a given author on a given theme? Um, but that was not the approach I took when we preached through the book of Isaiah. My method of teaching is textual. Going through the text of scripture, section by section, uh, chapter by chapter, and looking to analyze what we find in each of those sections of scripture. So this is a little bit different. Trying to figure out what is Isaiah's view of the end times. Now, the reason this question was asked by this pastor is he was thinking in terms of does Isaiah have a settled judgment or an opinion on the things we discuss today in eschatology, the things we have controversies about in the modern church. In other words, he wanted to know was Isaiah pre, post, ah, millennial? What position did Isaiah take? on those subjects we talk about today. And I think the pastor also used the term pan-millennial, which is usually a humorous statement to say, we just believe it's all going to pan out in the end. And so whatever view you take on the millennium. But you know, the millennium has to do with the thousand-year reign that's mentioned in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. And it's the first and only time the subject of a thousand-year reign of any sort is mentioned. And if you were to ask Isaiah... In the 8th century BC, Isaiah, prophet of God, what is your position on the millennium? <laughs> He'd probably look at you as if you were, you know, from a, well, you are from a different age, but <laughs> you, what, what, have you been, what have you been drinking? What is that about? I don't get it. I don't, you're talking another language. Uh, of course, we're talking Latin in the sense of a millennium, but uh, it wouldn't register with him because there's nothing in his, in his prophecy that touches upon what are our concerns this is our concern today. It wasn't his concern in the first century. And so he would not take a position on the millennium. In fact, his view of the comings of Jesus probably wouldn't even be much of a, a separation of time if you talked about a first coming of the Messiah and a second coming of the Messiah. His vision as a prophet of the Old Testament would simply look and see that the kingdom was coming. There was going to be a restoration of all things. There was going to be the ascendancy of the, uh, of the nation back to its glory days in the time of David and in the time of Solomon and so he would be speaking from his time his perspective as a man of his time as a man of his perspective about things to come which brought him to see much more than his own perspective and that's why the Peter says about the prophets of the Old Testament that they searched to, and studied to understand what time or what manner of time the spirit of Christ that was in them testified when it spoke of the coming of Christ and the glories that would follow. 
But they, they were told it wasn't for them. They were speaking these things, but for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we can understand Old Testament prophets in new categories, having to do with the first and the second coming. But Isaiah wouldn't make much sense to him. Because again, he was a man of his time, speaking in the language of his time, about things that had nothing to do with his time at all. I shouldn't say nothing to do with his time. But in a real sense, he has to say much to say to his own generation. He has much to say to the people of his own time. And he has much to say about prophecy about his own time. Because when he speaks a prophetic word that has to do with things to come, he's speaking of prophecy that, first of all, is impending. It has to do with the right now. What's going on in 8th century Judah? What's going on in terms of the fear of the Assyrian armies coming and bringing the nation under, its sub, uh, under subjugation? So it's talking about the impending things of the now. And then we're also speaking about times to come after his life that we'd say it's not impending, but yet it's near. It's near to Isaiah, far nearer to Isaiah than it is to us. Because Isaiah speaks of the return from Babylonian captivity. That wasn't in his, his lifetime. That was 150 years later. And yet he, there is a section that deals with that period of Israel's history. And then he also speaks in the book of Isaiah of Cyrus, the Persian king, sending the exiles back home. And the people coming back from exile under Cyrus's decree. So you have the times of Isaiah, you have the times of the Babylonians and the captivity. And it has something to do with Isaiah's lifetime in terms of what you see in chapter 39 when Hezekiah the king received the envoys from Babylon and then he opened up the doors for the Babylonians ultimately to know exactly where the treasures were hidden, exactly where to go uh, to in their conquest uh, to bring all the treasures of the temple and of Isaiah's and of Hezekiah's kingdom uh, back to Babylon with them. Uh, he gave them a lot of intelligence that they were looking for. But he was glad it wouldn't happen in his day. But that's another story. But Isaiah not only speaks of impending prophecy in his own lifetime, things that his culture then, there, were dealing with in 8th century Jerusalem, but he speaks of the future of Jerusalem, taken captive by the Babylonians, and then returning to uh, uh, under the decree of Cyrus. But it doesn't end there. Because he speaks of things that were not fulfilled in his lifetime, not fulfilled in the time of the captivity, not fulfilled in the time of the return, things that become fulfilled in the time of the Messiah. And so that's a more distant prophecy that he speaks of. And it's a distant prophecy that ultimately culminates in the way the Bible itself culminates. How does the Bible end? Upon what note does the Bible end? Well, in Revelation 21 and 22, it ends with the end of all things. It ends with a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, as a bride adorned for her husband. It's the picture of the consummation of all things. And that's exactly where the book of Isaiah ends. It ends with a new heavens and a new earth. Now, would Isaiah have any idea how far into the future would new heavens and new earth would be from his time? Well, he didn't. But yet, that's what he saw as the end of all things. And he does describe it in ways that a first, an 8th century BC prophet would describe these things. But he describes it in terms that the writer to Revelation picks up on and uses the exact same language with respect to the culmination of all things. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17, we read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So he sees a new heavens and new earth, and yet he sees a new heavens and new earth in terms of a city, in terms of the city of Jerusalem. Behold, I create new heavens and new earth, but I create Jerusalem a joy. And that's the exact same thing that you have happening in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. You have John in vision, seeing a new heavens and a new earth. 
chapter 21 and verse 1 of Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Again, Isaiah says that the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. There's the passing away of those things. And there's a new reality that's brought in, a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. Isaiah uses the language of creation itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I create a new heavens and a new earth. The same Hebrew word that is used for the creation speaks of the new creation. And then he says in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then the description goes on in terms of a city. He's describing a city. He's describing a city in which its inhabitants are um, are received and made holy. And the, the Lamb is the temple. He's present in their midst. Um, and he makes all things new. He is the king of the place. He's the king of the city. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees a city. He sees a kingdom. He sees a king. He sees a reign. He sees a reign that embraces the nations. It's a universal, ultimate picture of radical renewal, of radical change, of the radical transformation that God brings into an existence when he recreates the city. Now the city becomes important because that's Isaiah's focus of his prophecy. In fact, if you want to give me, uh, if you say to me, Pastor, just tell me in one sentence, what is Isaiah's eschatology? I'd say, well, Isaiah's eschatology is the eschatology of a, re, of a renewed city, of a restored city. Because Isaiah lived in 8th century BC, Jerusalem. He was Isaiah of Jerusalem, he's often called. All of the narratives, and it's not much narrative, most of it's poetry in his prophecy, but all the narratives take place in Jerusalem. He goes out to seek uh, King Ahaz by the commandment of God. And where is Ahaz? He's outside the walls of the city. <laughs> he uh, is sent to by Hezekiah in another place where another king he has an encounter with, and that's also in the city of Jerusalem. And the themes of Isaiah's prophecy is always coming back to Jerusalem. Or you might say Jerusalem slash Zion. Zion often is just another term for Jerusalem, although sometimes it refers to the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, which was Mount Moriah. It's the place that Abraham offered up Isaac, and the place where uh, Abraham told Isaac that God would provide the sacrifice. Well, he provides the sacrifice in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that took place in the tabernacle that was built by Solomon on Mount Moriah. And that was the place of the permanent resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. The place was associated with the presence of God in the tabernacle in the wilderness. That resting place of the feet of God that is emblematic of God's reign, of God's kingship, of God dwelling in the midst of the cherubim, between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, reigning in Jerusalem. That was the palace of the king. Solomon put his own palace on Mount Zion, but the temple was God's palace. And when Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, his train filling the temple, it was in temple terms that he saw that vision of God. God dwelt in the temple. That was the meeting place. Now, God does not become confined to the temple. He dwells not in temples made with hands. He's the omnipresent God who ultimately says he dwells with the, from the high and holy place with him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit. It's those that are trembling at his word that he meets and he dwells with. Um, it's the people of God that ultimately become his habitation and ultimately become his dwelling place. But in the Old Testament, it was always associated with Jerusalem Zion, always associated with the city of David, the city of God, the place where the kingship was, or the kingdom was to be established, the place where um, the kingdom is now to be renewed. And it's really throughout the book, whatever the focus is, impending prophecy, near prophecy, 
or distant prophecy is always in terms that speak of the city. How God is going to restore the city. How God's going to make all things new. Beginning with the city of Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, his glory would be spread throughout all of the earth. The Abrahamic covenant, in other words, would be fulfilled. That in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The blessing of God would come to the nations, but it would come from uh, Jerusalem. It would come from Zion. So you look at the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. I read the first chapter in our worship this morning. And one of the things I said about a book is you get to know a lot about the content of a book from its opening, from its beginning, from what we call the superscription. And the superscription of Isaiah is a brief verse that's found in one one. Isaiah 1 and verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. What's the vision concerning? It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of the four kings. Now, it as I said, it's really not limited the vision of the future to these four kings. Hezekiah dies, but Isaiah's prophecy continues. And it continues in terms of the end of the Davidic dynasty and the hope of its restoration. The end of the city of Jerusalem and the hope of its restoration. And a time when it will be restored in the days of Cyrus, when the people of Judah, people of Judah returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and ultimately to rebuild the temple. But even further than that, as we'll see. But in the first century, Isaiah of Jerusalem is addressing a city in the time of the Assyrians. And the city is a wretched city. It's a rebellious city. It's a city under judgment. It's a city that's been struck down. It's a city that's experiencing the first um, onslaughts of the Assyrian um, um, conquest of uh, the northern kingdom. And ultimately, as you can see in chapter 8, uh, that uh, Assyrian onslaught comes up right to the neck of Jerusalem. Right to the neck of Jerusalem. And God says, Assyria, you've gone far enough. And he pushes them back. And He's going to preserve the city. And he's going to preserve the city, the cities of Judah, although the cities of Judah will for that time forward be under the dominion of the Assyrians, later under the dominion of the Babylonians, later under the dominion of the Persians, and later than that under the dominion of the Greeks, and at the time of our Lord under the dominion of the Romans. Israel never had another king until Jesus. I mean, they never had a Davidic king until Jesus. And Isaiah's book is all about that eschatology of how God takes this wretched, rebellious, unfaithful city and turns it into Jerusalem rejoicing. Jerusalem made glad. Jerusalem a praise to the glory and honor of God. Jerusalem that will be the habitation of the righteous. Jerusalem that will be restored to the divine design to have a people that will be bringing his glory to the uttermost ends of the earth. And and then you have, as we saw in our study of Isaiah, uh, chapter by chapter, this incredibly graphic mix of prophecies pertaining to sin and its judgment, and then God's intervention in ways of righteousness, in ways of restoration, in ways of mercy and of grace, turning things around. And you see that in the opening chapter that deals with the unfaithful city. How the faithful city, verse 21, has become a whore. She was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And God's going to judge them for their sin. But ultimately, he's also going to restore them. Verse 26, And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors at the beginning, and afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Zion, in verse 27, shall be redeemed by justice, and those who repent 
by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. For those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. God's going to have his city. He's going to have his righteous city. He's going to have his city that will be inhabited by the righteous. And the rebels and sinners will be broken together. They will be cast out. They will be excluded. Chapter 2 begins with the vision of the, of the, of the city and of the, of the Temple Mount. Uh, being elevated and exalted in the latter days. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Got news for you folks. Zion was a piddling mountain. <laughs> wasn't very impressive. You'd have to go all the way up to Hermon to see an impressive mountain. Mount Hermon was impressive. But it's Mount Zion that God, upon, where God dwelt where God's temple was. And so it's the greatest mountain in the world. Beautiful for elevation, the psalm says. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the side of the north, the city of the great king. It's elevated because of who dwells there. It's impressive because of the fact that it's the mountain of the house of Yahweh. And it will be established as the highest of the mountains, be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. You see, this ultimate vision of the king kingdom, this vision of the end times, and in a sense, it, it, some good comes from uh, the prophet's warnings, the people's repentance, uh, the, God, the Lord's chastening in the days of Hezekiah in particular, but ultimately, the city was never restored to righteousness. You could never say that there were no rebels in it. You could never say that it was the ideal kingdom. That awaits the ultimate reality. The reality that comes at the end, that's superseded by nothing. <laughs> Where the former things truly are done away with. The new things come in fullness. I make all things new. The Lord's going to make all things new in that day. But in that day, the nations learn the ways of the Lord. They say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the peaceable kingdom we made allusion to uh, this morning. When Jesus reigns as king, when the Prince of Peace comes, he brings in that peaceable kingdom. And Isaiah has a number of references in the prophecy both to the king and to the kingdom. The king is certainly spoken about to Ahaz when God said, ask a sign. Uh, Israel is being threatened by this northern confederation of the kingdom of Israel and of the Syrians. And they unite together to topple Ahaz from his throne. And they're going to put a puppet king in his place. And Ahaz is outside the city waiting for the armies to come. And he's looking to make sure the water sources for the city are protected against the onslaught of the, of the Israelites and the Syrians in their confederation against him. And Isaiah is sent to him. Now, Ahaz wasn't a guy looking for Isaiah. But God wanted Isaiah to go to Ahaz. Because God had a word for him. And the word for him is the Davidic king is that he had to trust God. And it's in your faith that you will stand. He needed to trust God. And God gives him encouragement to believe him and to trust him by saying, ask for a sign. As high as the heavens, as deep as Sheol, from the highest of heavens to the depth of the grave, ask me a sign. I'll, I'll, whatever you ask, I'll do. And Ahab puts on that mask of false humility and says that uh, he won't tempt the Lord. No, no, I'm not going to ask a sign. He had no interest in the Lord. He's making alliances with the Assyrians. To ward off the Syrians and the and the and the, um, and the northern kingdom, he had no interest in serving God. He had no. He's he's bringing a, a, a pagan gods from Assyria uh, to worship in the Jerusalem temple, um, and yet God says, "I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear forth a son. You call his name Emmanuel, God with us." Now there's a sense in which it had reference to the signs that Isaiah's sons were 
uh, to the nation that they were set for signs in the land uh, the sign that uh, there was bound up in their name the name that spoke of the, des- of the desolation that would come, but also spoke of the remnant that shall return. Mer Shalal, Hashbaz, and Sher Jishab were the names of his sons. And those names set out the fact of the, of the, of the um, impending history. But God's not just speaking to this one set of circumstances. He's speaking of something that's a sign that's a miracle. Higher than the heavens, the birth of Isaiah's wife, uh, the pregnancy of Isaiah's wife, and the conceiving of a child, and the giving birth to a child, just doesn't measure up to that sort of thing. God's speaking of a greater king, a greater Davidic king, one that would be born of a virgin, one who would be truly Emmanuel, God with us in his own person. And so that very one that whom chapter 9 says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A child is not just a child born, it's a son that's given. It's the eternal son come in human flesh. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and peace there shall be no end. God says there's a future for Israel. There's a future for the city. And though the Babylonians, um, the Assyrians are going to come right to the neck of the city, though the Babylonians are going to take the city captive and the people captive, yet there's a remnant that will return, there's going to be restoration. But the ultimate restoration is not Cyrus's restoration. It was not in the days of the return from Babylon. It's the ultimate restoration that's in the child that's born, the son that's given. The one of whom it was said the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The peaceable kingdom will come in that child. The peaceable kingdom will come in that son. The peaceable kingdom will come when Yahweh comes. When Yahweh is enfleshed in the person of the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 11, you have again the restoration of the Davidic kingdom as there shall come forth the shoot from the stump of Jesse. The branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. And it says that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes with his ears here, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will kill the, the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And listen to the picture of this kingdom, this peaceable kingdom where they won't learn war anymore, where the swords will be turned into plowshares and the spears into pruning hook. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young li- and lion and fatten calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and the young shall lie down together, and the ox shall eat straw like the, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall be put, put his hand on the adder's den. Those things would be child abuse to allow any child to go near such animals as that. Poisonous snakes. Can't have a kid playing with poisonous snakes. But God says in this kingdom there will be no danger. There will be no danger. For they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. How could such a thing be? Well the curse of sin upon the earth must be removed at such a time as this. There must be no longer um, the subjugation of mankind to the, to the earth. It should be that man's restored to his place of rule over the earth, having dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the animals that God created. It's a picture of the peaceable kingdom that's restored in the times of the Messiah when the new creation reaches its zenith point, reaches its ultimate state. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. How can I be certain that this is talking about the ultimate kingdom, the end time kingdom, the uh, kingdom that will come in the days of a new heavens and new earth, where humanity again is restored to its dominion over the creation? Well, because this very, very language is found in chapter 65 and 66. 
Turn back to chapter 66. You know, this is a wonderful unity between these different sections of Isaiah. The section that's the Assyrian section. The section that's the Babylonian section. The section that's the Persian section. If you want to divide it up in terms of those uh, kingdoms in that time frame where those influences uh, come to bear. But you'll see that in the very final picture of the ultimate vision of the restoration of the city, the restoration of Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, the former things not being remembered or coming to mind any longer, rejoicing in Jerusalem, being glad in the people. At the end of chapter 65, it says, They shall not labor in vain, nor beat their their children for calamity, for they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust and, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. It's picking up the very language of chapter 11, the Davidic king restoring the kingdom to God. It's the ultimate restoration of the kingdom in what the New Testament describes as the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what Isaiah sees. That's his vision. That's his eschatology. The restoration of all things in terms of the restoration of the city. The city that has fallen. The city that is devastated by the Babylonian captivity. The city in which the temple falls. The city that's burnt to the ground. Becomes restored. But not just in the days of the return from captivity, in the days of Cyrus, but in the days of Messiah. That's when the kingdom is restored. That's when the new king takes his throne. And the throne is not an earthly throne, although the vision of Isaiah is an earthly vision. The vision of Isaiah is of an earthly vision that has to do with a king that ascends to the throne of the universe in ascension glory, in exaltation, to the picture that is given, he's high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple in chapter 6. That's the picture of Yahweh that Isaiah says, uh, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. He saw the glory of Jesus, high and exalted and lifted up. That language of high, exalted, and lifted up is in chapter 52, where the high and exalted Lord is pictured as the one who's also the suffering servant. And John picks up that language. He's high lifted up as he goes to the cross. There's an exaltation and a glory that's seen in the cross work of Jesus that reconciles the world back to God, that brings us back from our captivity, that brings us into the liberty of the knowledge of the true and the living God. And this Jesus who is ascended to the cross is ascended to the throne of the universe. And that's the reason why you have in Revelation that whole picture, the new heavens and new earth, having a different frame of reference than it does in Isaiah's time. Again, Isaiah is a man of his time. He's an 8th century prophet. He's speaking from Jerusalem. He's living in Jerusalem. And he sees a restored Jerusalem that's the restoration of the city that he knows. The city that he sees is, is, is wicked and rebellious and unjust and filled with idols. And that city now is going to be rid of all that. And it's going to be made new again. The old things pass away. All things become new. When John sees the city, he sees it from the vantage point of the ascended Christ. The city comes down from heaven from God. There's a sense in which Jesus is the fulfillment of what Zion means. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the embodiment of all the hope and promises of the restored city. And from the place of his glory, he receives a redeemed people, at least in terms of glorified souls, the souls of the just made perfect, the spirits of just men made perfect, who when they're persecuted and they're sent to glory, um, they're placed in the throne room of the living God and they're under the altar in a heavenly temple. There's the picture of the temple and the protection of the people of God until the rest of their servants are put to death for the sake of the gospel. And ultimately it's that people that will come back to earth with Jesus will come in a city that's a heavenly city, has its origins from the place of Jesus' rule, and will then be a city restored. It's the same picture that Isaiah has, just from a different perspective. One from an 8th century prophet living in the city of Jerusalem, a man of his time, and one from, as a Christian, seeing the ascension of Jesus, and the glory of Jesus, and the return of Jesus, of his expectation. But the point of it is, God restores the city. The city that's fallen, the city that's sinful, the city that's wicked, the city that's unjust will become restored with a new humanity inhabiting it, with the righteous inhabiting it. 
It's a new heavens, a new earth, and in the New, new Testament, wherein dwells what? Righteousness. Righteousness dwells in the city. Isaiah sees the righteous kingdom. He sees the peaceable kingdom. He sees it more in earthly terms. But yet it is a, um, a restored earth and restored heavens that come from the restoration of, uh, of, of God's people through the divine promises. Now, one of the things that Isaiah does is he pursues this eschatology of the city. This eschatology of the restoration of the city that reaches its culmination in chapter 64, 5 and 66. And we don't have time to go into all the details. Just in one message, just takes a series of messages to really begin to make any ground in terms of the details. But you know, the picture of the restoration in 65 and 66 has its precursors. It has its um, um, uh, statements anticipating the end. In fact, remember, we have that alternating pictures of God's judgment and then God's restoration. And almost all the pictures of restoration has, has to do with Zion. It has to do with the restored Zion. It has to do with what God will do um, in the latter days, restoring a fallen city, um, uh, uh, building it back up again, uh, making the the city that was uninhabitable to become a city of his habitation. It's in chapter four. Uh, in that day, verse two of chapter four, uh, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So there's going to be devastation. There's going to be war. There's going to be captivity. But there will be survivors. He was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem. Will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughter of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion. Again, language of creation. A new creation is in, in view here, folks. The whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of the flaming fire by night for over all the glory there shall be a canopy so there's going to be the glory of God revealed in and throughout the city just as God was present with Israel in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire he's going to be present in this city it's the dwelling place of Yahweh with his people and then in chapter 12 you have another picture of restoration um, it's certainly anticipated by the peaceable kingdom in chapter 11 but in uh, chapter 12 it says you will say in that day I will give thanks to you O Lord O Yahweh for you are angry with me your anger turned away that you might comfort me behold God is my salvation and I will trust and not be afraid Yahweh God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day uh, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name is exalted, sing praises to Yahweh for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy who? O inhabitant of Zion. Again, it's the glory of Zion that is revealed, the restored city, the city made righteous and just in the sight of God. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God's present in the restored Zion. And again, the restored Zion is nothing less than the restored heavens and earth. It's the creation remade. Creation that's fallen, restored to its intended dignity and glory as the creation of God inhabited by mankind who in his name uh, bear reign and rule over that creation having dominion and chapter 35 is another one it's also a picture it's again the picture of restoration the, the deserts becoming uh, uh, well watered garden is the picture and the picture is that again it's Zion that's in view and the people who are pe walking on a way of holiness there's a way of holiness that's there again it's a restored city and a restored people and a restored creation that's how Isaiah sees the future. That's what he sees as the ultimate end of all things. And that ultimate end of all things is universal. It involves all the nations. And again, you see how Isaiah shows how God is the God of the nations. Assyria, the threat of, uh, to Judah and uh, to uh, Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, uh, Isaiah says, he's the rod of my anger. He is the instrument that God uses. And someone will pick up an axe and use it. God picks up the Assyrians, and the Assyrians serve his purpose. 
Again, as we pointed out, as we studied the book of Isaiah, and all of these kingdoms that come to pass, it's interesting that the policies of that kingdom are perfectly suited to the designs of God with regard to his people. The Assyrians, their policy was total destruction, not total destruction, but total removal of uh, pole peoples, population groups, and putting them into other places. So you, you destroy the integrity of the nationhood. And the northern kingdom was to experience the simple destruction of that nation. And God was going to preserve Judah. He was going to preserve Jerusalem. He was going to preserve that tribe and that city and that nation, that southern kingdom. And it was in that southern kingdom that they were taken captive in Babylon. Well, what if the Babylonians had the Assyrian policy with regard to to captives? They would have simply made them no longer a nation. But no, the Assyrians said, no, no, we're just going to take uh, the best of your people. We're going to use them for our purposes. You can maintain your religion as long as it doesn't conflict with the laws of the Babylonian Empire. But nonetheless, you can open up your window, Daniel, and pray to your God, even though it was in opposition to what one of the commandments of the king was, and God had to deliver him from... um, from that situation but the point of it is that Daniel could still hold to his uh, beliefs as a Jew he could read the book of Jeremiah that we see he does in chapter 9 while he's still a captive in Babylon their purpose was not to destroy their identity it was to maintain their identity so that their identity as the people of Yahweh would remain in its integrity because they were coming back home at least a remnant was and then it was the policy of the Persians to do what? To say, well, we're not going to even keep your people. We're just going to let them go back home because we'll have a more successful rule over that nation if we show we have a concern and a benevolent care. In the wisdom of Cyrus, that's the policy he adopted and just in time for God's fulfillment of his prophecy with respect to the 70 years of captivity. The people will come back home. God is the God who rules the nations. And his rule over the nations will be finally realized in that new creation. Where all the nations will come into that new creation. And you see it in chapter 66 of Isaiah. Um, Just briefly, we'll we'll look at it. So I want this point of universality to really be before our minds. Isaiah's ultimate understanding of what God's doing in the world and where it all ends up is in terms of the universality of Messiah's reign over the nations. It's not just a Jewish kingdom. In chapter uh, 66, um, I guess we can begin the reading uh, in uh, verse 12. Uh, For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. There's going to be the overflowing of the nations into this restored Jerusalem, into this recreation of the the heavens and the earth. Um, In verse 15, For behold, uh, the Lord will come and fire his chariots like the whirlwind to render anger and his fury again against his enemies. Again, this salvation is always connected with judgment. Judgment upon the enemies, rescue to God's people and to God's friends. And um, you see in verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. It's all the nations. It's a universal kingdom. So though Isaiah's concern is not a millennium, if you have some idea that a millennium has to happen because God has unfulfilled promises to Jews, it's simply Isaiah's not, that's not Isaiah's perspective. That God's promises to the Jews is that through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise that was never fulfilled. It's not so much the promise of the land. They had the land. <laughs> they, they were given the land grant. <laughs> right? Israel had the land grant. What they never had was the blessing. That through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God says that's the promise that hasn't yet been fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled as Jesus is raised to rule the nations, as Jesus sends forth his messengers to the nations. So again, God's, message, God's agents are these kingdoms 
to fulfill his will and his purposes in terms of the impending, in terms of the near, and then in terms of the distant. It's what he does in the coming of the true Davidic king. What he does in the coming of the servant of chapters uh, 40 to 55. What he does in terms of the anointed one of chapter 61. Of the one who comes as the mighty warrior to bring all things subject unto Yahweh. Uh, God does that in his son. He does that in the sending of Emmanuel. He does that in the sending of the child that's born. The son is given. It's the government of Christ that will extend to the nations. And then God does this work of extending this reign and kingdom that ultimately is realized in this new heavens and new earth. Not only through the nations that he uses for his own intended purposes, not only through um, his son, of course, who's the principal actor in all of the salvation events of Isaiah, but also through the people, and particularly through those who are called witnesses, whom God raises up. And makes to be witnesses to the gospel to the nations. You begin read the beginning of Isaiah 53. What does it say? Who's believed our report? There's a report. There's good news. Isaiah 40 begins on that note of good news. Look at it in chapter 40. A voice cries. I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. Um, but it's the word of our God that endures forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. And so there's the coming of the son, there's the messengers that are sent forth, John the Baptist of course in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord is one of them, but also the gospel heralds enter into that picture. Herald the good news, O Zion. Zion has good news, your God has come to you. Your God has come and has established his works of grace and of salvation. And the news of that message is to go forth from where? From Jerusalem. Unto the uttermost parts of the earth. See how the New Testament takes up Isaiah's vision and sees it almost exactly in the same terms. It all begins in Jerusalem. Jesus suffered outside the city. He gained salvation through his act of sacrifice outside the city. And from Jerusalem, the good news goes forth to the nations. Paul says his ministry was from Jerusalem to Illyricum, that he brought the message of the gospel. Now to me, the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's the witnesses that also are involved in that work. And we saw this morning in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in, in Acts 13, how I, I, Paul takes up Isaiah 49 and says, the Lord has commanded us. He's commanded us. And you think, well, he's commanded you? No, he's commanded Jesus to be a light to the nations. But yet there's no real distinction between Christ and his people in terms of the realization of the purposes of God with view of the end times. Is that the gospel is to go forth to the nations, that a people are to be gathered. And when this gospel is preached to all the nations as a witness, Jesus says in the Mount of Olives sermon, Matthew 24, then the end will come. Then the consummate kingdom will come. Then the kingdom of God's grace that begun with the coming of Jesus will culminate in the kingdom of glory at his return. A new Jerusalem come down from heaven from God, fulfilling the promise of Isaiah 4, 12, 35, 65, 66. That's Isaiah's eschatology, just in a nutshell. It's an eschatology of the city. It's an eschatology of how God preserves the city, protects the city, And ultimately renews and restores the city. And populates the city of God with the righteous. Bringing culmination of all of the message, the the work of Christ and the work of his church. To the culminating point of bringing in the new heavens and new earth. In in which righteousness dwells. Well that's the major picture, all the rest is detail. Wonderful detail. Glorious detail. We don't have the ability to go through that detail, but that's the basic outline. And I hope it's clear.
and I hope it's wonderful in your estimation and glory. I hope it helps you read Isaiah with a great deal more benefit and profit. Look, you want to profit from the prophet, by the way. But you want to look at the, the city, central to the whole picture, central to the whole purpose of God. You want to look at the kings. It's central to the whole purpose and plan of God, and certainly the messianic king, and then the work of his messengers that he sends forth to the world with the gospel message. Um, and we see what the writer of the Hebrew says, we've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to the very things Isaiah saw in prophecy as the, as, as the culmination of the end times. And may God help us to live in the light of the vision and help us to live in the light of its realization in Christ in terms of the inauguration of that vision and then look forward to the culmination of that vision when Christ returns. Oh, may God be pleased to bless these ideas that we've set forth. Again, it's sweeping panoramic view of the book of Isaiah and of the vision of Isaiah. But I think it holds up when you read through the book of Isaiah that these are the major pivots upon which Isaiah sees the ultimate destiny of the people of God. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time we consider these matters and Lord, there's so much to say on these themes and I hope that I pray that the men as we gather on Tuesday on our Zoom meeting, they'll be anxious to talk more about these things and we'll have a good conversation about these things and you'll give us further light and understanding and insight into these things. So we pray that you'd be pleased to receive our praise and thanksgiving for your blessings to us this Lord's Day, your goodness in meeting with us, especially meeting with us in terms of um, my own sense of uh, just being tired and worn out and uh, perhaps having something uh, medically coming on that I don't know exactly what it is. And thankful, Lord, you sustained me through the day. Thankful I could... I could uh, make it my way through the, the various ministries of this Lord's Day and, and to do it with a sense of real joy and real pleasure and, and, and excitement in the things of the living God. So bless your word to us and dismiss us with your blessing. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.